Section 13 of A Woman's Journey Around the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Woman's Journey Round the World by Ida Laura Pfeiffer. Chapter 8 China, Part 2. With regard to the social manners and customs of the Chinese, I am only able to mention a few as it is exceedingly difficult, and, in fact, almost impossible, for a foreigner to become acquainted with them. I endeavoured to see as much as I could, and mixed on every possible opportunity among the people, afterwards writing down a true account of what I had seen. On going out one morning, I met more than fifteen prisoners, all with a wooden yoke, kangu, about their necks, being led through the streets, this yoke is composed of two large pieces of wood, fitting into one another, and having from one to three holes in them. Through these holes the head, and one or both hands, are stuck, in proportion to the importance of the offence. A yoke of this description varies in weight from fifty to a hundred pounds, and presses so heavily upon the neck and shoulders of the poor wretch who bears it, that he is unable to convey his victuals to his mouth himself, and is compelled to wait till some compassionate soul feeds him. This punishment lasts from a few days to several months. In the latter case, the prisoner generally dies. Another description of punishment is the bastinado with the bamboo, which, when applied to the more tender parts of the body, very often, as early as the fifteenth blow, frees its victim forever from all his earthly sufferings. Other more severe punishments, which in no way yield the palm to those of the Holy Inquisition, consist in flaying the prisoner alive, crushing his limbs, cutting the sinews out of his feet, and so on. Their modes of carrying out the sentence of death appear to be mild in comparison, and are generally confined to strangling and decapitation, although, as I was informed, in certain extraordinary cases, the prisoner is executed by being sawed in two, or left to die of starvation. In the first case, the unhappy victim is made fast between two planks, and sawed in two longitudinally, beginning with the head, and, in the second, he is either buried up to his head in the ground, and thus left to perish of want, or else is fastened in one of the wooden yokes I have described, while his food is gradually reduced in quantity every day, until at last it consists of only a few grains of rice. In spite of the horrible and cruel nature of these punishments, it is said that individuals are found ready, for a sum of money, to undergo them all, death even included, instead of the person condemned. In the year 1846, 4,000 people were beheaded at Canton. It is true that they were the criminals of two provinces, which together numbered a population of nine million souls, but the number is still horrible to contemplate. Is it possible that there could really be so many who should be looked upon as criminals, or are persons sentenced to death for a mere nothing? or are both of these suppositions true? I once happened to go near the place of execution, and, to my horror, beheld a long row of still-bleeding heads exposed upon high poles. The relations enjoy the privilege of carrying away and interring the bodies. There are several different religions in China, the most prevalent being Buddhism. It is marked by great superstition and idolatry, and is mostly confined to the lower classes. The most natural is that of the wise Confucius, 
which is said to be the religion of the court, the public functionaries, the scholars, and educated classes. The population of China is composed of a great many very different races. Unfortunately, I am unable to describe their several characteristics, as my stay in China was far too short. The people I saw in Canton, Hong Kong, and Macau are of middling stature. Their complexion varies with their occupation. The peasants and laborers are rather sunburnt. Rich people and ladies white. Their faces are flat, broad, and ugly. Their eyes are narrow, rather obliquely placed, and far apart. Their nose is broad, and their mouth large. Their fingers, I observed, were in many cases extremely long and thin. Only the rich, of both sexes, allow their nails to grow to an extraordinary length, as a proof that they are not obliged, like their poorer brethren, to gain their livelihood by manual labor. These aristocratic nails are generally half an inch long, though I saw one man whose nails were quite an inch in length, but only on his left hand. With this hand, it was quite impossible for him to raise any flat object, except by laying his hand flat upon it, and catching hold of it between his fingers. The women of the higher classes are generally inclined to corpulency, a quality which is highly esteemed, not in women alone, but in men as well. Although I had heard a great deal about the small feet of Chinese women, I was greatly astonished at their appearance. Through the kind assistance of a missionary's lady, Mrs. Bolt, I was enabled to behold one of these small feet in natura. Four of the toes were bent under the sole of the foot, to which they were firmly pressed, and with which they appeared to be grown together. The great toe was alone left in its normal state. The fore part of the foot had been so compressed with strong, broad bandages, that instead of expanding in length and breadth, it had shot upwards, and formed a large lump at the instep where it made part and parcel of the leg. The lower portion of the foot was scarcely four inches long, and an inch and a half broad. The feet are always swathed in white linen or silk, bound round with silk bandages, and stuffed into pretty little shoes, with very high heels. To my astonishment, these deformed beings tripped about, as if in defiance of us broad-footed creatures, with tolerable ease, the only difference in their gait being that they waddled like geese, they even ran up and down stairs without the aid of a stick. The only persons exempted from this Chinese method of improving their beauty are girls of the lowest class, that is, those who live in boats. In families of rank, they are all subject to the same fate, while in those of the middle class, as a general rule, it is limited to the eldest daughter. The worth of a bride is reckoned by the smallness of her feet. This process of mutilation is not commenced immediately, the child is born, but is deferred until the end of the first, or sometimes even third year, nor is the foot after the operation forced into an iron shoe, as many have affirmed, but merely firmly compressed with bandages. The religion of the Chinese allows them to have a number of wives, but in this respect they are far behind the Mohammedans. The richest have rarely more than from six to twelve, while poor persons content themselves with one. I visited during my stay in Canton as many workshops of the different artists as I could. My first visit was to the most celebrated painters, and I must frankly own that the vividness and splendor of their coloring struck me exceedingly. These qualities are generally ascribed to the rice paper on which they paint, and which is of the greatest possible fineness 
and as white as milk. The paintings upon linen and ivory differ very little, as far as the colouring is concerned, from those of our European artists, and the difference is therefore the more visible in their composition and perspective, which, with the Chinese, are yet in a state of infancy. This is more especially true of perspective. The figures and objects in the background rival in size and brilliancy those in front, while rivers or seas float in the place which should be occupied by clouds. On the other hand, the native artists can copy admirably, and even take likenesses. Footnote. When they copy a picture, they divide it, like our own artists, into squares. End of footnote. I saw some portraits, so strikingly well drawn and admirably coloured, that first-rate European artists need not have been ashamed to own them. The Chinese possess marvellous skill in carving ivory, tortoise shell, and wood. Among the superior black lacquered articles, especially with flat or raised gold ornaments, I observed some, which were worthy of a place in the most valuable collections of objects of vertu. I saw some small work tables worth at least six hundred dollars, a hundred and twenty pounds. The baskets and carpets, made from the bamboo, are also remarkably beautiful. They are, however, far behind in gold or silver work, which is generally heavy and tasteless. But then again, they have attained great celebrity by their porcelain, which is remarkable not only for its size, but for its transparency. It is true that vases and other vessels four feet high are neither light nor transparent, but cups and other small objects can only be compared to glass for fineness and transparency. The colors on them are very vivid, but the drawings very stiff and bad. In the manufacture of silks and crepe shawls, the Chinese are unsurpassable. The latter, especially in beauty, tastefulness, and thickness, are far preferable to those made in England or France. The knowledge of music, on the other hand, is so little developed that our good friends of the Celestial Empire might almost, in this respect, be compared to savages. Not that they have no instruments, but they do not know how to use them. They possess violins, guitars, lutes, all with strings or wires, dulcimers, wind instruments, ordinary and kettle drums, and cymbals, but are neither skilled in composition, melody, nor execution. They scratch, scrape, and thump upon their instruments in such a manner as to produce the finest marrowbone and cleaver kind of music imaginable. During my excursions up and down the Pearl Stream, I had frequent opportunities of hearing artistic performances of this description on board the Mandarin and Flower Boats. In all kinds of deception the Chinese are great adepts, and decidedly more than a match for any Europeans. They have not the slightest sense of humour, and if you detect them, content themselves with saying, You are more clever or cunning than I. I was told that when they have any livestock, such as calves or pigs, for sale, they compel them, as they are disposed of by weight, to swallow stones or large quantities of water. They also know how to blow out and dress stale poultry, so as to make it look quite fresh and plump. But it is not the lower classes alone that indulge in cheating and fraud. These agreeable qualities are shared by the highest functionaries. It is a well-known fact, for instance, that there are nowhere so many pirates as in the China Sea, especially in the vicinity of Canton. Yet, no measures are taken to punish or extirpate them, simply because the mandarins do not think it beneath their dignity to secretly share in the profits. 
for example though the opium trade is forbidden so much of this drug is smuggled in every year that it is said to exceed in value that of all the tea exported in the same period footnote a pickle of raw opium is worth about six hundred dollars one hundred and twenty pounds end of footnote the merchants enter into a private understanding with the officers and mandarins agreeing to give them a certain sum for every pickle and it is no rare occurrence for a mandarin to land whole cargoes under the protection of his own flag in like manner there is said to be on one of the islands near hong kong a very extensive manufactory of false money which is allowed to be carried on without any interruption as it pays a tribute to the public functionaries and mandarins a short time ago a number of pirate vessels that had ventured too near canton were shot into and sunk the crews lost and their leader taken the owners of the vessels petitioned the government to set the prisoners free and threatened in case of a refusal to make extensive disclosures everyone was convinced that a sum of money accompanied this threatening letter for shortly after it was reported that the prisoner had escaped i myself was witness of a circumstance in canton which caused me great uneasiness and was a pretty good proof of the helplessness or apathy of the chinese government on the eighth of august mr agassiz set out with a friend intending to return the same evening i was left at home alone with the chinese servants mr agassiz did not return at the appointed time at last about one o'clock in the morning i suddenly heard voices in loud conversation and a violent knocking at the street door i at first supposed it to be mr agassiz and felt much surprise at the late hour of his arrival but i soon perceived that the disturbance was not in our house but in that on the opposite side of the way it is easy to fall into an error of this description as the houses are situated quite close to each other and windows are left open day and night i heard voices exclaim get up dress and then it is horrible shocking good heavens where did it happen i sprang quickly out of bed and huddled on my gown thinking either that a fire had broken out in some house or other or that the people had risen in insurrection footnote i had more especial reason to fear this latter circumstance as the people had given out that on the twelfth or thirteenth of august at the latest there would be a revolution in which all the europeans would lose their lives my state of mind may easily be imagined left as i was entirely alone with the chinese servants End of footnote. seeing a gentleman at one of the windows i called and inquired of him what was the matter he told me hurriedly that intelligence had just arrived that two of his friends who were proceeding to hong kong Wampoa lay on the road had been attacked by pirates and that one was killed and the other wounded he then immediately retired so that i was unable to learn the name of the unfortunate victim and was left all night a prey to the greatest anxiety lest it should be mr agassiz fortunately this at least was not the case as mr agassiz returned at five o'clock in the morning i then learned that this misfortune had happened to monsieur vaucher a swiss gentleman who had passed many an evening in our house on the very day of his departure i met him at a neighbor's where we had all been in the highest spirits singing songs and quartets at nine o'clock he went on board the boat set off at ten and a quarter of an hour afterwards in the midst of thousands of champagnes and other craft 
met his tragical end. Monsieur Vaucher had intended to proceed to Hong Kong and there embark on board a larger vessel for Shanghai. Footnote. One of the ports which were opened to the English in 1842. End of footnote. He took with him Swiss watches to the value of 40,000 francs, 1,600 pounds, and in speaking to a friend, congratulated himself on the cautious manner he had packed them up, without letting his servants know anything about it. This, however, could not have been the case, and, as the pirates have spies among the servants in every house, they were unfortunately but too well acquainted with the circumstance. During my stay in Canton, the house of a European was pulled down by the populace, because it stood upon a piece of ground which, though Europeans were allowed to occupy, they had not hitherto built upon. In this manner, there was hardly a day that we did not hear of acts of violence and mischief, so that we were in a continual state of apprehension, more especially as the report of the near approach of a revolution, in which all the Europeans were to perish, was everywhere bruited about. Many of the merchants had made every preparation for instant flight, and muskets, pistols, and swords were neatly arranged ready for use in most of the counting-houses. Luckily, the time fixed for the revolution passed over, without the populace fulfilling its threats. The Chinese are cowardly in the highest degree. They talk very large when they are certain they have nothing to fear. For instance, they are always ready to stone or even kill a few defenseless individuals, but if they have to face any opposition, they are sure not to commence the attack. I believe that a dozen good European soldiers would put to flight more than a hundred Chinese. I myself never met with a more dastardly, false, and at the same time cruel race in my life. One proof of this is that their greatest pleasure consists in torturing animals. In spite of the unfavorable disposition of the populace, I ventured out a good deal. Herr von Karlowitz was untiring in his kindness to me and accompanied me everywhere, exposing himself to many dangers on my account, and bearing patiently the insults of the populace, who followed at our heels, and loudly expressed their indignation at the boldness of the European woman in thus appearing in public. Through his assistance I saw more than any woman ever yet saw in China. Our first excursion was to the celebrated temple of Honan, which is said to be one of the finest in China. This temple is surrounded by numerous outbuildings, and a large garden enclosed with a high wall. You first enter a large forecourt, at the extremity of which a colossal gateway leads into the inner courts. Under the archway of this portico are two war-gods, each eighteen feet high, in menacing attitudes and with horribly distorted features. They are placed there to prevent evil spirits from entering. A second similar portico, under which are the four celestial kings, leads into the inmost court, where the principal temple is situated. The interior of the temple is one hundred feet in length, and one hundred feet in breadth. The flat roof, from which hang a number of glass chandeliers, lamps, artificial flowers, and silk ribbons, is supported upon several rows of wooden pillars, while the multitude of statues, altars, flower-pots, censers, candelabra, candlesticks, and other ornaments, involuntarily suggest to the mind of the spectator the decoration of a Roman Catholic church. In the foreground are three altars, and behind these three statues, representing the god Buddha in three different aspects, the past, present, 
and the future. These figures, which are in a sitting posture, are of colossal dimensions. We happened to visit the temple, just as service was being performed. It was a kind of mass for the dead, which a mandarin had ordered for his deceased wife. At the right and left altars were the priests, whose garments and gesticulations also resembled those of the Roman Catholics. At the middle altar was the mandarin, piously engaged in prayer, while two stood beside him, fanning him with large fans. Footnote. His costume was composed of a wide overgarment reaching to the knees, and furnished with flowing arms, and underneath this, trousers of white silk. The upper garment was made of brocade of very vivid colors, and an extraordinary pattern. On his breast, he wore two birds, as marks of his rank, and a necklace of precious stones. His shoes, composed of black silk, were turned up into points at the extremities. On his head, he wore a conical velvet hat with a gilt button. End of footnote. He frequently kissed the ground, and every time he did so, three wax tapers were presented to him, which he first elevated in the air, and then gave to one of the priests, who placed them before a statue of Buddha, but without lighting them. The music was performed by three men, one of whom twanged a stringed instrument, while the second struck a metal glow, and the third played the flute. Besides the principal temple, there are various smaller ones, and halls, all adorned with statues of gods. A special honor is paid to the twenty-four gods of pity, and to Quan Fu Tsi, a demigod of war. Many of the former have four, six, or even eight arms. All these divinities, Buddha himself not excepted, are made of wood, gilt over, and painted with glazing colors. In the Temple of Mercy, we met with an adventure which was nearly attended with unpleasant consequences. A priest, or bonds, handed us some little tapers for us to light and offer to his divinity. Herr von Karlowitz and myself had already got the tapers in our hands, and were quite willing to afford him this gratification, when an American missionary who was with us tore the tapers from our grasp and indignantly returned them to the priest, saying that what we were about to do was an act of idolatry. The priest took the matter very seriously, and, instantly closing the doors, called his companions, who hurried in from all sides, and abused us in the most violent and vociferous fashion, pressing closer every instant. It was with the greatest difficulty that we succeeded in fighting our way to the door, and thus making our escape. After this little fray, our guide conducted us to the dwelling of the holy pegs. Footnote. The reader must know that these animals are looked upon as particularly sacred. End of footnote. A beautiful stone hall is set apart for their use, which hall these remarkable divinities fill, in spite of all the care bestowed on them, with so horrible a stench that it is impossible to approach them without holding one's nose. They are taken care of and fed until death summons them away. When we visited the place, there were only a pair of these fortunate beings, and their number rarely exceeds three couples. I was better pleased with the residence of a bonds, which adjoined this holy spot. It consisted of a sitting-room and bedroom merely, but was very comfortably and elegantly fitted up. The walls of the sitting-room were ornamented with carved woodwork, and the furniture was old-fashioned and pleasing. At the back of the apartment, which was flagged, stood a small altar. We here saw an opium-eater, lying stretched out upon a mat, on the floor. At his side was a cup of tea, with some fruit, 
and a little lamp, besides several pipes, with bowls that were smaller than a thimble. On our entrance he was just inhaling the intoxicating smoke from one of them. It is said that some of the Chinese opium smokers consume from twenty to thirty grains a day. As he was not altogether unconscious of our presence, he managed to raise himself, laid by his pipe, and dragged himself to a chair. His eyes were fixed and staring, and his face deathly pale, presenting altogether a most pitiable and wretched spectacle. Last of all we were conducted to the garden, where the bonzes at their death are burnt, a particular mark of distinction, as all other people are interred. A simple mausoleum about thirty feet square, and a few small private monuments, were all that was to be seen. None of them had any pretensions to elegance, being built of the simplest masonry. In the former of these edifices are preserved the bones of the persons who have been burnt, and among them are also buried the rich Chinese, whose heirs pay pretty handsomely to obtain such an honour for them. At a little distance stands a small tower, eight feet in diameter and eighteen in height, with a small pit, where a fire can be kindled in the floor. Over this pit is an armchair, to which the deceased bonds is fastened in full costume. Logs and dry brushwood are disposed all round, and the hole is set fire to, and the doors closed. In an hour they are again opened, the ashes strewed round the tower, and the bones preserved until the period for opening the mausoleum, which is only once every year. A striking feature in the garden is this beautiful water-rose, or lotus-flower, Nymphia nilumbo, which was originally a native of China. The Chinese admire this flower so much that they have ponds dug in their gardens expressly for it. It is about six inches in diameter and generally white, very rarely pale red. The seeds resemble in size and taste those of the hazel, and the roots, when cooked, are said to taste like artichokes. There are more than a hundred bonzes who reside in the temple of Honan. In their ordinary dress, they differ nothing from the common Chinamen, the only means of recognizing them being by their heads, which are entirely shaved. Neither these nor any other priests can boast, as I was told, of being in the least respected by the people. Our second excursion was to the halfway pagoda, so called by the English from its lying halfway between Canton and Huampoa. We went up the Pearl Stream to it. It stands upon a small eminence near a village, in the midst of immense fields of rice, and is composed of nine stories, one hundred and seventy feet high. Its circumference is not very considerable, but nearly all the same all the way up, which gives it the look of a tower. I was informed that this pagoda was formerly one of the most celebrated in China, but it has long ceased to be used. The interior was completely empty. There were neither statues nor any other ornaments, nor were there any floors to prevent the eye from seeing to the very top. On the outside, small balconies without railings surrounded each story, to which access is gained by steep and narrow flights of stairs. These projecting balconies produce a very fine effect, being built of coloured bricks, very artistically laid, and faced with variegated tiles. The bricks are placed in rows, with their points jutting obliquely outwards, so that the points project about four inches over one another. At a distance, the work seems as if it were half pierced through, and from the beautiful colours and fineness of the tiles, a person might easily mistake the entire mass for porcelain. 
while we were viewing the pagoda the whole population of the village had assembled round us and as they behaved with tolerable quietness we determined on paying a visit to the village itself the houses or rather huts were small and built of brick and with the exception of their flat roofs presented nothing peculiar the rooms did not possess a ceiling of their own but were simply covered by the roof the floor was formed of earth closely pressed together and the internal walls consisted partly of bamboo mats what little furniture there was was exceedingly dirty about the middle of the village was a small temple with a few lamps burning dimly before the principal divinity what struck me most was the quantity of poultry both in and out of the huts and we had to take the greatest care to avoid treading on some of the young brood the chickens are hatched as they are in egypt by artificial heat on our return from the village to the pagoda we saw two champans run in shore and a number of swarthy half-naked and mostly armed men jump out and hasten through the fields of rice directly to where we were we set them down as pirates and awaited the upshot with a considerable degree of uneasiness we knew that if we were right in our supposition we were lost without hope for at the distance we were from canton and entirely surrounded by chinese who would have been but too ready to lend them assistance it would have been doubly easy for pirates to dispatch us all idea of escape or rescue was out of the question while these thoughts were flashing across our minds the men kept approaching us and at length their leader introduced him as the captain of a siamese man-of-war he informed us in broken english that he had not long arrived with the governor of bangkok who was proceeding for the rest of the way to pekin by land our fears were gradually dispelled and we even accepted the friendly invitation of the captain to run alongside his ship and view it on our return he came in the boat with us and took us on board where he showed us everything himself the sight however was not a particularly attractive one the crew looked very rough and wild they were all dressed in a most slovenly and dirty manner so that it was utterly impossible to distinguish the officers from the common men the vessel mounted twelve guns and sixty-eight hands the captain set before us portuguese wine and english beer and the evening was far advanced before we reached home End of section thirteen